Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. They're trying to win this debate by saying it's really not that bad, whereas the logical politics of this is to say it is bad and we're on it. Hi, it's Lucy Fisher here with Political Fix, the FT's insider guide to Westminster. You heard there the FT's Robert Shrimsley talking about the government's handling of the crumbly concrete crisis that's now beset more than 100 schools. And Robert's here with me in the studio. Hi, Robert. Hey, Lucy. Also here is the FT's Stephen Bush. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Lucy. So we'll get into the details of the bubbly concrete crisis in a moment as well as the effect of bankruptcy this week of the UK's biggest local authority. But let's kick off with what I thought was the most interesting story this week in the longer term, which was the Labour reshuffle. And Robert, I thought it was a pretty bold shake-up from Starmer. He brought back people like Hilary Benn, probably a bit overdue. There were promotions for talented individuals like Peter Kyle and Shabana Mahmood. And it really made me think it does actually look now like a Labour leader preparing for government. Well, that's good because that's what he would like you to think and everybody else to think. Um, Yes, I think that although there were quite a lot of headlines about, you know, the return of Blairites and this kind of thing, which has a certain truth to it, I think the two things that struck me about it, well, three things. Number one is, as you say, it looked like a shadow cabinet being formed with a view to these are the people who are going into government and we're now getting on with trying to look serious about government. The second thing is there are a couple of areas where I think he buffed up the attack because people have been a little bit underperforming or a little bit quiet. He's brought in others who might be a bit more aggressive. Go on, name names. Well, like Shabana Mahmood, for example, at Justice. I just think she's a very gutsy performer who was rather behind the scenes as the campaign coordinator and did a good job and is very much on side with Keir Sama, very much of the Labour right, but also a very feisty operator. And I think crime and justice is an area where they can do a bit more. The other thing that just slightly struck me is that when you look at the shadow cabinet, there are more shadow cabinet members than there are places in a real cabinet. Hmm. And so I also think he's created a little bit of internal competition, which is no bad thing. Stephen, what was your take? This is primarily a a reshuffle where I think actually the useful lens is not, you know, Blairites, it is former special advisors, right? There are more former special advisors round the shadow cabinet table than there were the Brown government in 2010. I think that reflects how important institutional memory is to Keir Starmer's conception of how institutions work, how they become effective. And also Angela Rayner was one of the big moves. I mean, to my mind, it makes sense to put her in levelling up and again, increase the attack there. I think it was possibly not at its maximum pitch under Lisa Nandy. But has Starmer stored up a problem by effectively demoting Nandy? She does carry some clout still in the party, doesn't she? Um or well, not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think, no, she doesn't, right? Which is that essentially, right, the important thing he had to do in this reshuffle to, in order to give him the space to do everything else was to um, unfiddle, to say it in, an, you know, in a PG-friendly way, unfiddle the mistake he made in his first reshuffle when he couldn't move her, he couldn't move Angela Rayner, he had to put, put her in the shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and it created this situation where in this role and in opposition is sort of effectively your spare voice, was held by someone who was not a close ally and would have meant giving this role of the Prime Minister's vicar on earth in office to someone who's not a close ally. And, you know, one of the things he he 
failed to do in that reshuffle was square off his most powerful internal rival. He did this time essentially by saying, Ange, what jobs do you want? And then of the list of jobs that she wanted that were being held by people who themselves weren't too effective or, or system critical to move, um, you know, I'm sorry, I, I don't like to come on here and, you know, pour scorn on people who have just been sacked, but ultimately... Lisa Nandy's tenure at the, at, in the local government roof had made her the sackable available job. And in some ways, although it's not a job that she particularly craved, she has still ended up with like a pretty good consolation prize in terms of internal labour politics, which is international development. You know, so in some ways, I do think some of the briefing from some of her allies was not helpful because it annoyed lots of Labour MPs who feel about the development job the same way Tory MPs do about, say, the defence job. To hear someone describe that as a demotion, <laughs> you know, one Labour MP did essentially kind of come up to me very angrily, go like, you know, it's disgusting that someone in the Labour Party, the Labour Party would say that this job that was held by, you know, and then listed a bunch of... Um, former Labour International Development Secretaries. But the reason why she's there is she was weak enough to move. I do think the other point about Angela Rayner is that she's also had to reach a bit of an accommodation with Keir Starmer. Hmm. We often talk about the John Prescott role under Tony Blair and this figure with more cred with the left, more cred with the unions in the Labour Party, who was a sort of shield for a more rightish Labour leader. And... We often say Angela Rayner is going to play that sort of role. But in the first couple of years of Keir Starmer's leadership, she didn't really play that role very well. Whereas more recently, I think she's made more of an effort to stick with him when he said they weren't going to reverse the uh, two-child policy on, on benefit. She was loyal on that. So she's also showed, I think, that she's prepared to be more of a team player, which I think, by the way, is wise. Because although she's terribly important and potentially dangerous in opposition... If Keir Starmer wins a big election result, then he can do what he likes. So she's wise to get on the bus. Yeah. I, I mentioned um, Hilary Benn being brought back from the backbenches, which struck me as uh, an obvious move, particularly into the Northern Ireland brief where he knows a lot. And, and it's a brief that Keir Starmer, as a former DPP, cares about. I was also struck by Darren Jones getting a big promotion, the former chair of the business committee, who's quite a smoothie to me. That makes sense, him going in, in as a shadow chief treasury secretary. And finally, Chris Bryant, I thought, was an interesting move. He's very savvy on the media. He's good at attack, but not always good at uh, towing the party line, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, in terms of the other subplot of Labour's relationship with the media, he is a fully paid up member of the Let's Do Leveson 2 uh, full media regulation group. Now, given that one of the things the Labour Party would like is the endorsement of the Sun and Times, because it's, you know, emotionally resonant, that I thought was quite a punchy appointment for that reason as well. And also, as you say, he's someone who I think has enjoyed the freedom of being on the back benches. And, yeah, I mean, I remember shortly after David Lammy was reappointed to the front bench, him kind of telling allies, you know, well, look, I'm going to have to relearn how to be a, a loyal member of a, of a front <laughs> bench. And I think Chris Cryant will also have to relearn that kind of thing. I mean, I do think given Keir Starmer's role, in the prosecutions of some journalists. That's probably a fond hope, getting that endorsement, isn't it? So I, I think you're right. I've never been able to convince myself of a universe in which they do get that endorsement, but well, they, are, they, yes. yeah, they are going for it. Yeah, Robert, um, last weekend at the FT Weekend Festival, you weren't able to join us on the live panel of Political Fix, partly because you were preparing to interview Rachel Reeves. What did we learn from, from that interview about how Labour is preparing for government? Well, I think we learned that they're jolly serious about this, that they are not going to leave any hostages to fortune. Now, a few days earlier, she had ruled out 
the idea of introducing wealth taxes, although that's such a nebulous phrase, there's still plenty of scope Hmm. for wiggle. The way that she answered questions on that, the way that she answered questions on Brexit, but also the way that she talked about the need to to plan long-term to rebuild the fabric of the country. The impression that I took from it, I don't know that I learned a phenomenal amount that was new, but I just got, you really got the sense of the force of someone who is absolutely determined they're going to get there this time. Is that sensible to be so cautious or is it a bit of a turn-off? Well, it's a, it's a balancing. I definitely think cautious is better than reckless. Uh, I definitely think the bulk of the job for an opposition is reassuring voters that they are safe and they can be trusted. And Labour is putting an immense amount of time into that. I think if we're still saying in eight months' time, are they being too cautious, then the answer will be yes, they are. But if they can begin over the course of their party conference and the next six months to unveil a sense of how they'll actually change the country were they to win, then I think they've probably got it about right. Let's come back to that in due course. But for now, I think we've got to turn to to Gillian Keegan. We're a week on now from her announcement, just days before school children were about to go back for the autumn term, that 100 more than 100 schools would have to close because of crumbly concrete. Stephen, uh, how do you think the government's handling of this crisis is going? Uh, I mean, pretty badly, right? I mean, I, I, so I think I'm going to focus first on the political handling, right, which is that, broadly speaking, the government has sounded like an old government in talking about it, right? You know, that way that, um, you know, when you talk to someone who's who's been a minister for a long time, they'll be really across the issue. They'll talk very interestingly about trade-offs from the kind of perspective of the kind of policy chat and we all like and enjoy. But in terms of the thing that anyone wants who's affected by something wants to hear in terms of reassurance, it's like talking to a Martian, right? And it has been Martian-style communication. You know, most schools aren't affected. Well, you know, as as a friend of mine who is affected by this said, they said, okay, but I only have one child. <laughs> yeah, so 100% of their childcare is affected by this scandal, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, I think the the biggest problem, right, so, because obviously the problem they can't fix is the fact that it's always been easy to cut infrastructure spending rather than day-to-day spending. The consequences of the very tight budgets we've had for, a, you know, the last 13 years were inevitably going to have some maintenance backlog issues, right? So they can't fix the kind of policy problem. But the political problem of them doing this kind of very bureaucratic, kind of almost like they're trying to sort of win a debate with stressed parents is just so poorly done. And I think in terms of seeing this row partly as a stress test for how they're going to approach this very long election campaign, if I were a Conservative MP with a majority of, say, 10,000, I might be able to hold on in the right circumstances. I'd be looking at this and going, oh, maybe it's time to, you know, phone Odgers Bernstein and, and get my CV out there. <laughs> I, I like the way you put that. They're trying to win a debate with stressed parents. And Robert, it does feel like that. The statistic that they keep deploying is that less than 1% of schools are affected. But it doesn't really wash, does it? It doesn't. It's something very whiny about the way the government is conducting this debate. You know, statistically, they have a point. 1%, but it's 147 schools. I think, as Stephen says, they're trying to win this debate by saying it's really not that bad, whereas the logical politics of this is to say it is bad and we're on it. The bottom line is, you know, they are simply reaping the whirlwind of 14 years in power when you can't blame stuff on anybody else anymore. And some of it is actually on you. Uh, you know, they did cut the school building programme in the middle of the austerity drive. And the truth is that all governments 
this government included, have a stop-start approach to infrastructure. It's the first thing that goes when money gets tight is you stop the long-term projects because there's no immediate votes in them. And the more they talk about it this way, the more they remind voters that they've been in power a long time and you really can't blame anybody else. And what about Starmer? He's trying to push his uh, advantage here, trying to attack Sunak by saying he's out of touch. He's not personally affected because his kids are at private school. Do you think that's an attack line that that works, that people sort of read insouciance from Sunak and think it's because he's wealthy and and doesn't have to participate in the states? Maybe at the margins. I've never been convinced about the he's wealthy Mm -hmm. um, attack line. I don't think the public care if they think you're trying on their behalf. I think the attack line surely is a degree of anger that this is the state of our country. You've been in charge for 14 years. What the hell is happening to our country? That seems to me the attack line. And I think you don't care personalises what is a bigger political attack, potentially. And Stephen, the Tories are trying to counter by saying, well, look, this is a a bigger problem in Wales where Labour have been in charge for quite some time. Do you think that works with voters in England? Uh, No, I think the history of attempts to to use Labour's record in Wales shows that it has never been that effective. I think this is a shame in lots of ways, but with the greatest of respect to the devolved government in Wales, I think the average voter in England, which is 80% of all voters in the UK, basically are like, why am I being made to hear about the decisions of a town council? And broadly speaking, if there is a a much better critique of the Welsh government is that after 24 years, the Welsh economy essentially means that every public spending decision they make is determined by the size of the grant they get from Westminster. So it's very hard on infrastructure spending to have a plausible line of attack that isn't also Westminster's fault. And also English voters don't give a flying one. And I think the point is, what I think the the, the Conservative approach of the it's only 1% misses is that crumbling school buildings becomes a metaphor for a wider issue about public services. And it plays to the sense that a lot of voters have that things aren't really working. And, you know, one doesn't have to go into the whole broken Britain, you know, uh, hyperbole, but uh, Britain isn't working like it should be. And that's the difficulty for the Conservatives, because what the school buildings issue is, is a physical manifestation of a sense that people already have. And my contention is that the many people who don't pay attention to the news and their busy lives will have caught two headlines this week and will conflate them, even though they're quite different. One will be the schools, crumbly concrete schools having to close. And the other is Birmingham Council going bust, which we'll talk to William Wallace of the FT about shortly. And I think people will draw those together and just think, well, these are two stories probably about cuts that have happened over many years coming home to roost. But before we move on, I think we need to speak about how Gillian Keegan has been handling this. We've talked about how it's reflected on Rishi Sunak. Robert, what did you make of her hot mic moment? Well, it was, it, I mean, it, it's its rough. I don't think that the broadcasters totally covered themselves in, in glory by doing this, but a seasoned professional knows you have to be careful. I mean, I think it's a problem for Gillian Keegan, who's very widely liked, I think, at Westminster. And many of the reasons why people like her sort of came out of it. She's very plain spoken, she's direct, she's quite funny, very down to earth. And a lot of the time, those are very attractive political traits. But every now and then, they can jump up and bite you. And I'm afraid that particular moment just looked a bit too entitled. People don't want to hear that you're working hard, they expect you to be working hard. There's no prizes for effort when you're a Secretary of State. So I think it just goes to the broader point we were discussing of the government just looks like it doesn't get how angry people are, even though I suspect she absolutely does. But it was a bad, bad moment for her, and she's already out of favour a bit with Rishi Sunak. 
So as we mentioned, the other big story this week is the effective bankruptcy of the UK's biggest local authority. In fact, I think it's the biggest local authority in Europe, Birmingham City Council. The FT's William Wallace is in Birmingham. Hi, William. Hello, Lucy. So explain to us how this has happened. It's about an equal pay compensation claim. But has this council merely been unlucky or has it been badly run over some time to fall into this trap? It's about an equal pay problem that has been rumbling and getting worse since, uh, I think it first kicked off in the, in the late 90s. You got lawsuits culminating in a Supreme Court ruling that led to a settlement and further claims have come since then. So in total, the council has been looking at liabilities nudging on £2 billion. And when you think that Birmingham, like every council in the country, has been under immense strain as a result of the decade of cuts that took place between 2010 and 2020, when it lost about 40% of its income. Coming on top of that, the new liabilities that have emerged, which are worth about between 650 and 760 million, have essentially been the tripwire. Um, there are other problems that, that, that have happened, such as a, an IT system, which is costing a lot more than it was supposed to. But essentially, without this equal pay thing, Birmingham would have would have got through and in some ways has actually been very well run. So what happens now? The council has to halt spending on the vast majority of services uh, other than those that it has a statutory duty to provide. I was speaking to a journalist, a local journalist in Croydon yesterday. Croydon has had a uh, similar problem, although for different reasons, since early 2020. Just to get an idea of what happens over the medium term to a, a place that is living on essential services only. And it's a pretty grim picture. The, in Croydon, um, the public parks have gone to ruin. What libraries that are left are only partially open. More worryingly, uh, some of the charities that depend on support from the council to support some of the most vulnerable people in more deprived areas have lost their funding from the council. And a whole string of things that start to be uh, eroded. And when you think that many councils are already under such great strain because of inflation and because of increasing demand for adult and child social care, it's a grim picture. So Birmingham is facing essentially a period of, of fairly severe austerity. It does indeed sound bleak and, and you sketch out the real world consequences of this. Just tell us, what do they have to keep providing by law? Well, there's a statutory obligation to provide a, an adequate library service. What that actually is, is a bit vague. Um, but Birmingham has a huge public library in the centre of the city that presumably could be one of the things that suffers. But the most important statutory obligations are for adult social care, child social care, child prevention services, those types of things. And what about bin collections? Do they continue? <laughs> yes, they do. Thank yes, God. They do. Now, Birmingham follows Thurrock, uh, Croydon, Slough and Northamptonshire uh, in issuing a so-called Section 114 notice. Should we be on the lookout for any other councils about to go bust? Um, there's also Woking uh, earlier this year. My understanding is that there are about 20 to 25 councils that are in severe financial distress. And interestingly, sort of under the radar on the day that Birmingham declared its Section 114 notice, Stoke-on-Trent warned that it was um, teetering on the edge of having to do so too. And what's interesting about that is that 
to my knowledge, Stoke has no peculiar circumstances that might tip it over the edge that, that you had in Thurrock, where the council had a, an investment scheme that went madly wrong and Woking similarly. All the councils that have, have effectively gone bankrupt so far have had quite specific circumstances. What's worrying is that across the board, councils of all political colours are, are saying that they are experiencing financial distress on a scale that they really haven't before. And they are all saying there needs to be a, a broader systemic solution to the problems that local authorities are having with their finances beyond the sort of piecemeal approach that we've seen so far. I think one of the things that's interesting is that clearly one of the questions that's now going to arise is the extent to which the government is prepared to offer any kind of bailout or assistance to Birmingham. And initially at the moment, the Conservatives are clearly slightly enjoying the misfortunes of a Labour council jumping up and I think this is what happens when Labour runs things and there's a good attack line and we can show you the misfortunes of having Labour leadership. On the other hand, we're talking about Birmingham here. This is not a place that you can just ignore. It's a place where Conservatives have MPs in the wider environs and want to keep them. It's got a Conservative mayor of the West Midlands who also won't want to preside over this. So I think one of the tensions that's going to come up is the extent to which the Conservatives really are prepared to just let Birmingham languish with these problems. That is a very interesting point on the politics of this. And I think Andy Street, the mayor for the West Midlands, is in a tricky position like that. So far, he's coming out saying that both the West Midlands Authority will have to step in to an extent. And he's also saying that government should provide some support. So I think there is this tension. And also, is there not a danger that, as with the schools issue, that the wider public is not deceived by that and knows that a large part of the problem is that local councils across the country, including Birmingham, were starved of resources in recent years. There's also, presumably, there are equal pay problems like this bubbling under both in other councils, but also in local government pension schemes, right? So the government will presumably be aware that Birmingham's problems today are probably quite a few local authorities' problems, you know, fairly soon. Uh, Indeed, that's true. And beyond those two issues, uh, pensions and equal pay liabilities, there are others too that are looming. The councils have been able to keep, for example, their budgets for special needs off the balance sheets, but by 2025, we'll have to put on the books that spending that's taken place over many years, and that when it comes on the books, is going to call a whole range of councils to have very serious financial difficulties. So whoever wins the elections next year will find the financing of local authorities is going to be looming very large as a problem. William Wallace, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So we've just got time left for political fixes, stock picks. Stephen, who are you buying or selling this week? I am going to buy Shabana Mahmood, the new Shadow Justice Secretary. She's already got a lot of sort of internal clout and plaudits through her role as campaign coordinator over the last two years. She's one of the people who is really credited for turning around lots of Labour's processes internally. But she now essentially has a role where her job is to basically to be Yvette Cooper's anger translator on the crime (laughs) and justice brief. I think that will certainly annoy some Labour activists and some people in Labour's Liberal core, but uh, it will win her, I think, a lot of plaudits in Westminster and she is going to be a big part of the kind of the Labour offer in terms of what the country as a whole sees. So, yeah, I think now's a 
good time to, to buy shares in Shibana while the price is still within my budget. Robert, who are you buying or selling? Okay, so I'm going for a, a brief share sugar rush spike. I'm going to buy Rishi Sunak because he's heading off to India for the G20 summit, a trip I think you're going on, um, I um, am. Lucy. And I think it's going to be quite a remarkable event. You know, the, the sight of a, a British Indian prime minister arriving in Delhi, I think he's going to get a really, really big reception. And people in Britain are going to notice this and they're going to be reminded of why Rishi Sunak is different and interesting and also a bit fresh. And so that's a positive for him. I also think it's a hell of a moment for India to just, you know, what is it, 70, 75 years or whatever after independence to, to see a British Indian leader arriving. I think it's a big moment for both countries and I think it'll get a lot of attention. So Buy now, sell soon after. May I just say, Robert, I think that is um, something of a sweetener after you wrote uh, what was a marvellous column, but a very hard-hitting one this week, saying that the Tories are now past the point he's of uh, collapse. insider trading, right? He's, he's talking <laughs> down the Rishanak stock in his column, and then he's buying in a knockdown price. Ah, damn, you spotted my... I did, to be fair, I did say buy and sell quickly afterwards. It's a spike rather than a long-term hold. I, I think the interesting thing is, is I think on paper that is... A, is a great argument. It is a huge moment of symbolic resonance in British and Indian history, but also in global history, right? But I think, you know, one of, I know I'm aware I've said this several times on this pod, but one of Rishi Sunak's missteps is that he hasn't, I think, talked up enough what a historic moment his leadership is. If I were them, I'd be getting some friendly magazine journalist to go on the trip with me. Because you know, if you think about like those kind of great bits of photojournalism of the 20th and 21st century, uh, Merkel and Macron hugging uh, at the World War One centenary, um, you know, it ought to be like that. But I don't think it will be. Absolutely. And I think while he's facing such a tough time at home, there will potentially be scenes of you know him being mobbed and given this hero's welcome uh, in India, which will um, do a bit of positive legwork for his, for his reputation. What about you, Lucy? As for me, I'm, I'm going to buy Peter Kyle, who I think is not a household name yet, but is likely to become one, um, tipped by those that know as potential future leader uh, of Labour. Uh, he's in Robert, you're raising your eyebrows. We'll come to to your view in a minute. Um, he's been in the Northern Ireland brief. He's just been promoted on the Labour front bench to the Science, Innovation and Technology uh, brief, very much the portfolio du jour. And I think if he has a good result in mid-Bedfordshire, where he's been running the by-election campaign, he's really going to be on the up. No, I wasn't raising my eyebrows specifically. I, I agree with you. I just thought future leader, he probably won't thank anybody um, <laughs> for, for that. But I do think that the one thing I think is worth saying, it's, it's telling that two of our three picks are people who got a better job in the shadow cabinet reshuffle, which is probably the mark of a good reshuffle. Robert, Stephen, thanks for joining. And that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. If you like the podcast, do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. It really helps spread the word. You can find FT articles linked to today's podcast topics in our show notes. They're free to read for Political Fix listeners. And don't forget to sign up to Stephen's award-winning Inside Politics newsletter. You'll get 90 free days. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here, same time, same place, next week.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.